Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. We've got a little bonus episode for you today. James and I recorded last week um, an episode on the history of humans, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Um, And I have managed to get my friend Adam Rutherford to meet me in London and to sit down and have an interview, have a discussion about the history of humans. James, since we last recorded humans last week, has anything burst into your massive brain or, or out of your things, massive brain? Things burst in my massive brain and, and eject forth. Um, no, I've just been thinking about, you know, what defines, what has historically defined people as human. You know, and there was a time when you know, people would have thought that use of tools you know, is what defines somebody as people as human, the, the act of sort of carrying and storing and, and seeking shelter, making shelter. Um, the Storing's cr- interesting, isn't it? Because that's yeah. about planning for the future. Yeah, um, making clothing, that, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit last week about recording, recording information in, in various ways. Um, art and music, yep. you know, are things, that, and, and, and culture... Use define us as use of fire, um, but but I mean you know there are there are researchers who who see things very differently. If you take Adam Rutherford's uh, new book, for him, uh, what distinguishes people, uh, what distinguishes humans from animals? Because a lot of recent research has shown um, has shown animals using tools. Uh, for example, and I think here quite clearly about you know, the work that David Attenborough has done with with primates and and you know using using rocks to smash open nuts and things like that. It's eroded a lot of the sort of distinctions between animals and humans, and so you know this idea of communication uh, and 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 it's not it's not just communication because I think animals communicate all the time, but I think it's this idea of of communication and recording that I think is, you know, is interesting. I think the point here is that history and science live side by side. And yes. therefore, our understanding of what it is to be human has its own history and it has changed and it has transformed, hasn't it? Yes. Um, and it's at a very interesting stage now. Yes. Um, and this is where Adam's come along and he's tried to put humans back Back towards, into that picture, back yes. Into, back into the yes. animal side of things yes. rather than the, the seeing humans as the unique unique side of things so so there's a there's a there's a fascinating history there into which this book fits yes well um 
Everyone sit down and imagine me and Adam sitting on a bench outside the Oval Cricket Ground in the sun. Here we are. I'm going to start off by just asking you why, why you chose to write the book. So, the, the, the book before this, which was called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, was, was, a, was really, I mean, I describe it as being a history book because it, is, it was about um, using DNA, I'm a geneticist, it was about using genetics and DNA to retell and to reanalyze uh, historical narratives. Um, and and in, in that I was talking about sort of two million years worth of prehistory, but also what genetics tells us about recent history as well. Um, and the Book of Humans is, is pretty much a direct sequel to it, and it came about from a single sentence that I wrote in the, in the, um, in the final chapter, which accidentally turned out to be a film quote. So I, I, I accidentally quote films all the time. Okay. I, I, I have very few original <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wrote a line which was, it was describing a particular phenomenon which, about human evolution, which I'm interested in, which is, and the line was, um, everybody is special, which is another way of saying that nobody is. Yes. Now, what film is that from? You've got kids. Um, it is from uh, The Incredibles. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's, possibly Incredibles 2. It's Incredibles 1. It's oh, Dash. Okay. Dash from The Incredibles. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you very much, everyone. Yeah, well done. <laughs> so I wrote this down, and, and uh, my editor wrote back saying, I like the way you've quoted The Incredibles in the final. And I was like, what? Did I? I didn't realise. Anyway, so th that, that became the sort of. Uh, you know what it's like when you're writing, it, it became the, the, the kernel of an idea that I couldn't shake, which was the notion of human exceptionalism. Yep. So we are, we're incredible, we're an incredible species and we're, we're very unusual. But at the same time, the whole trajectory of science has been to, uh, to erode the pedestal that we put ourselves on um, and to place us back within nature. And so that's, you know, Copernicus puts, puts the Earth as not uh, a specially created place at the centre of the universe, but yep. yet another planet around a fairly average sun. That's quite disappointing for some people, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Well, it is. <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> if that's your sensibility. And then Darwin does it again in, in 1859, or, or more precisely in 1871, by revealing the mechanism of, of evolution, which includes us. And so that specialness has been eroded by science we're not specially created and yet and this is the this is you know we are the paradox of of evolution because we're incredible but at the same time we're exactly part of evolution on the same evolutionary tree as you know the daisies and the grass in front of us and, and that vizsla over there is very excitable yeah i mean so looking at it one way the one way you can think about humans is what we're talking about now is that this book exists in a history of other books who have written about humans and trying to understand who we are and what we are. So there's a historiography there, so you can pull it apart that way, can't we? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm pretty critical of a lot of the, well, many thousands of years worth of history of people who have applied what, what, some, what we sometimes describe as uniqueness theory. So the, the question is, the central question is, what is it in our evolutionary history that changed on the trajectory from being just another ape to being the types of apes that, that we that we recognize today that are capable of doing the things that we're doing right now um, and the uniqueness theories often say things like well it, it is one thing so you know there's a, a switch flips whether that's genetic or something cultural some people have suggested that it was our uh, controlled use of fire Darwin thought that some people thought it was tool use 
um, speech and language, you know, you identify all the things that are sort of categorically and qualitatively different between us and other animals. And then you build a thesis around that saying, well, this is the thing that happened. Now, I, I, in all of my work, I, I've sort of rejected um, the very simplistic narratives because, well, you know, history doesn't work like that. Evolution doesn't work like that. Humans don't work like that. And I think that I like to embrace the complexity and also not come up with definitive answers. Yeah, I think one of the key things as well is this notion of change. I was thinking about when I was reading the book, I was thinking about the way that science can help history and history can help science. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, when you talk about the great leap forward, the change from Neanderthals and we go to Homo sapiens and then something magical happens at some point and trying to identify that actually it wasn't, it wasn't a revolution, it was a, a long long process and then a lot of the cultural developments might have happened not necessarily in one instance in one kind of thunderbolt but happen at different at different you know times and in different locations i think that's really important and it can so you can see how things are shared and how uh, it's like a way of explaining things isn't it well i think one of the fundamental problems which you've just identified perfectly there is we just don't have the language to describe the evolutionary history in the same way that we talk about history history so when we're talking about timescales which are unimaginable, when we talk about migration, so you know, one of the standard um, truisms of, of evolutionary history is that Homo sapiens is an African species and a, a small proportion of humans migrated out of Africa, it's called the Out of Africa Hypothesis, around 70 or 80,000 years ago. Now when we say things like migration, we think of that in contemporary terms or in historical terms that they were you know the migration of the angles and the saxons to to um east anglia in, in the early middle ages or we think of syrian ref refugees crossing the mediterranean today the migration that was the out of africa migration from which the population of the world was f founded outside of africa took maybe five or ten thousand years yeah at a rate of about you know, a mile every century. Yeah. I mean, like, people fall faster than that. That's, that's, we just don't have the language to describe this sort of transition. So people use terms like the cognitive revolution because obviously we have different mental capabilities from our nearest cousins, which are uh, chimpanzees or bonobos. But we've been separated from chimpanzees and bonobos for something like seven or eight million years. And that change, according to the archeological record and also the mathematical models that we use, in us, in our lineage itself, probably took 10,000 years. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's 10,000 years is longer than the whole of recorded history. <laughs> and yet there's so many themes which appear in this book, which share with any kind of history, written historical period that you might write about. I agree. You know, that's, that's I think, absolutely fascinating. Whether, I mean, there are so many themes you can talk about, but clothing is one, you know, fashion, the way people think, the way people behave. Um, let's, you know, just, just briefly, what am I wearing today? Describe what I'm wearing today. You, you're wearing the attire of a man who's going to watch England beat South Africa <laughs> at the Oval. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I, well, when, I, when I got up this morning, I put my clothes on. I was like, I'm, uh, I feel unique, but in, in a few, few hours' time, when I'm sitting around with, uh, you know, 30,000 other people all dressed the same. Um, so, yeah. but, but do, do the same for me. I, you know what I'm doing today. I'm going to watch a screening of a new science fiction series that I've worked on. Well, you may not believe this, but um, he is wearing an orange velvet suit, <laughs> a bow tie, and a striped hat. I'm taking a photo at this yeah. moment <laughs> to prove this, this lie. No, he's not. He's, um, he's, 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 he's looking very Rutherford. Uh, 
dark and mysterious. Slightly spy-like. <laughs> Standard black. Uh, but you're not wearing a tie. <laughs> I'm not. There's, there's a lovely bit in your book about ties. Well, so often I find that evolutionary psychology falls into the trap of being not very good science yeah <laughs> and quite good storytelling so um this made my uh, 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 my feelers go up as a historian i suddenly thought whoa there's a lot of historians out there that do this yeah so so i've worked a lot with historians over the last few years and you know and and, and spoken to you on 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 occasions and um and i i i think that that overlap between science and history, which I find so appealing, is they're basically the same. Yep. They're evidence-based subjects. And what was surprising to me, having not studied history in an academic sense since I was 17, um, was that there was such a range of historians, and some of them are uh, you, you know, really hardcore evidence-based in a way which is indistinguishable from scientists, and, and I gravitate towards them and have good working relationships with people like them. Um, but also, also the discovery that there, that there were uh, that there are plenty of of historians out there who are less wedded to <laughs> to facts, <laughs> as yeah. far as I can tell. I don't mean to, you know, I'm not I'm not slagging off a whole discipline here, but there's a lot of interpretation. Yeah, and there's a lot of interpretation within science as well. Now, I, I would cast evolutionary psychology as being a, an interpretive field at best. And so the tie thing, so you, you, you mentioned the tie thing when we were talking about clothing. People have suggested over, over the years that men wear standard ties, you know, Windsor knotted tie, as a power symbol because it points towards their genitals. Now, this is in the academic literature. Now, it, it takes about, it's a sort of a appealing thought if you spend no time thinking about it. <laughs> but it's obviously nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's also when you uh, the, the bit you write about, you know, you compare it to uh, uh, ruffs well, or, quite, or bow yes. ties or other strange yeah. things that people wore around their necks at uh, one time. Of course, yeah, because people have only been wearing straight ties that point towards their, their groins for, I don't know, a century at tops. Yeah. And it's only in the West, and it's only a proportion of men that do that. Whereas, you know, in the 16th century wearing a giant ruff, what does... <laughs> That says something different. I I don't know what it what it no, does. It, say. it does say something. I've always been um, bewildered by that. But there's a there's an interesting history of the neck there, which I really want to look into. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm sure there's some fashion historians who have good theses behind. I think it's more pernicious when dealing with um, sort of sex differences, particularly, which is a fascination of well, it's an important part of study of evolutionary biology anyway. But it's an, but it's a particular fascination for some evolutionary psychologists. Uh, because you can attribute, or, or if you if you do this badly, you can attribute all sorts of gender differences and sex differences that we see in society today. It's just made up. It's bad science. So the example I sometimes give, I don't give it in the book because I don't want to give him credit in a, a, a text which should be for the long term. But I write about it. I've written about it in articles. Jordan Peterson, a psychologist, has, has suggested. He hasn't suggested. He has stated that women wear blusher because it reminds men of fruit. And then, I mean, I'm laughing because it's, it's quite difficult to say that sentence without just, just showing how absurd it is. Yeah. Now, you know, he states this as a fact and then uses this as part of his ideology to say, well, this is why, you know, make, make up is part of how women should present themselves or how women feel they, they should present themselves or whatever the ideology is. Of course, just like the tie, it's it's just unsustainable, unsupportable guff. Yeah. Because, a, 
most fruit is not red. B, most skin tones are not white. <laughs> you can keep on going. I know, you? but it's, yeah. again, it's, it's, the, it's the interpretation of, you know, just the most super... If you spend four seconds thinking yeah. about these types of things... You make another good point about lipstick as well in the book, but we'll, we'll move on. You, you've told me your, fa your, your favourite sentence at the, at the end of the book. My favourite one was, pilot whales are not going to play the violin, or something like that, <laughs> wasn't it? But, yeah. Or possibly invent the violin. Yeah, so this, this was another... Um, it, it's, it's an area of evolutionary history that we don't... I think we don't really talk about enough in, in the public discourse, which is, well, the assumption that everything is, that all our physical capabilities are evolved for purpose. So they, have, they are adaptations, which is the sort of central thesis of, of, of natural selection. But when you look at the bones in our hands, um, and you look at the bones in the forelimbs of, say, a dolphin, a bottlenose dolphin, they're virtually identical, almost bone for bone match. And we use that in textbooks to show that there is shared evolution there. But of course, the bones in a dolphin's forelimbs are fused because they paddle with them. And that means they can never, they, they have no manual dexterity in the same way that, that we can. So it's not, I'm not making a judgment on, on dolphins here at all. It just means that their evolutionary trajectory is different from ours. And whereas in about uh, two and a half hours, you'll be watching Moeen Ali um, turn the ball like a mofo. Yeah. A, a dolphin will never ever do that. Bowl a googly. Will, a dolphin will never bowl a googly. <laughs> yeah. You can state that as a fact. But you know, the idea of dexterities, yes. that's fascinating, isn't it? And, and how we, we acquire that and the actual things that we can do with our hands and the way that we use our hands. So we talk about tool use a lot in the book because that was one of the things that, um, that Darwin suggested was unique to humans but of course we know tool use is not unique to humans and in fact there's a there's a crow just over there that you can probably hear in the background there, there it is yeah so we caledonian crows are particularly adept at tool use and, yeah. um, and, and what we now know is that around about one percent of animals use tools are obligate tool users which means they can't function without tools. Now 1% doesn't sound like much, but that's literally thousands of animals. But the interesting thing is it ranges across classes. So there's, well, corvids, so there's the birds over there. Lots of mammals, so that's us and all the other great apes. Um, uh, mollusks, so octopuses also use, use tools. Um, my favorite example is the boxer crab. Yep. Which <laughs> pulls up anemones. Stinging, stinging ones. Stinging anemones. Yes pulls the an enemy in two and uses them like boxing gloves to ward off uh, enemies or are they stingy boxing gloves yes yeah so that's a weapon as well as a tool it is it is and it, which is an important distinction to weapons are a subset of tools the, the what the the unfortunate irony of this is that um when you watch videos of which there are many on, online of boxer crabs wielding their anemones they look just like cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not called boxer crabs anymore, they're called pom-pom crabs. Oh, which, okay. I know. <laughs> I know the, the crow's an interesting one as well, because um, there was that um, experiment in Seattle a few years ago, which you write about in your book, with crows and masks, yeah. which I love. And that made me want to write a little bit, bit, bit about masks. And also crows are interesting because um, we now know that the Vikings kept them as pets. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, what were, the, what were the name of um, Odin's two crows? They had excellent names. Oh, yes. Um, I've just well, written a no, book were, about the Vikings, were, so I should know this, were, but I, I don't. They were ravens, not crows, weren't they? Yeah. Anyway. Um, I think ravens, ravens are corvids. 
They are. Yeah, so Corvid family. Well, they've found lots of um, Corvid bones in and around domestic settings uh, in Viking York. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, let's go back to this Seattle experiment, which I love yeah, the sound so, of. Yeah, so, um, so one of, the, one of the key things that is different between us and other animals is that we, we transmit, and this is kind of the key idea in the book, we transmit ideas and we transmit information between individuals and between populations all the time. And we're doing it now. Every time we, we communicate, we're transmitting bits of information. Most other animals, for many, many animals learn, but we actively teach, and that's almost unique, well, pretty much almost unique. And so that is a big difference. Um, there are a few examples of information being transmitted in a non-genetic way in animals. And one of them is with Caledonian crows in, in Seattle. Now, I, I am, I'm, I hedge my bets a little bit on this experiment because it's terribly impressive but difficult to explain and so it needs, in science, it needs to be tested further. But anyway, the experiment was this. So Caledonian crows, they, they hang around in, in urban areas as they do in the UK and some experimenters, some scientists decided to test their ability to learn human faces. So they, they did two things. One, one is they, they wore some masks and ran at the crows, <laughs> which is just That's a funny a, experiment to do. Yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> and, and so the, the, these crows learn Were that. they like normal masks or like the scream masks? <laughs> I don't actually know what the masks are like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, I mean, you can have a lot of fun with that, sort yeah. of Freddy Krueger running at them. Yeah. Anyway, they, they run at the crows and so they, they're perceived as a threat and the crows identify these faces as being a threat, whereas with other masks, I think they did it without masks, in fact, humans walked through them slowly and the crows didn't scatter because they weren't a threat and so then they, the, 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 the process by which they learn this they go and test this again uh, a few days later a few weeks later and the crows have learned that when they see the scary face mask they, they should they leave they get the hell out of dodge because yeah. it's a threat now what that, that's that's cool it shows learning behavior it shows facial recognition of humans by a, by a corvid by a bird which is interesting enough the really weird thing is I came back several years later to presumably a population which was not the same. It was like five years later, yes, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. And they, the, the population as it was then still recognised the scary faces compared to the non-scary faces. Now that is quite difficult to explain because it means they have managed to transmit this information about what the scary faces were, possibly transgenerationally. Yeah. Now that is the type of stuff that we do, you know, we, we teach our children um, uh, uh, things that can only be passed down from us or from peers and only a few animals do that and it is possible, we think, that the Caledonian crows are doing that with this, this bizarre scary faces. Yeah. And the communication is an interesting, interesting part of, of how, what, what makes us unique but we do know that other animals communicate to each other in very sophisticated ways. Um, but yeah. the, the recognition is interesting. I mean, just that little experiment, you know, whether or not it's got any, any merit. Um, the idea of actually recognising threats or recognising anything is fascinating. And you could, you could definitely write a little history of recognition, or at least of, of what we understand about recognition. Yeah, so, so the, I, mean, I, th I think this is a really significant, not moment, but part of our evolution, our cognitive evolution. And centred around a psychological concept which we call agency detection. So 
uh, you know how we see we see faces all the time right and we see faces in things that uh, don't have faces but we associate you know people see the face of Jesus in a piece of toast or yeah. or uh, in clouds um, and it's or houses that look a bit like Hitler um, and that's quite funny but it's it, it's indicative of the amount of brain space that we devote to recognizing faces and the importance of the face in our in our social evolution, in our social behavior. Let's just finish up with one bit, which I really, really loved, because um, this, um, I thought, was a real mixture of, of science and history, and, and in fact, it's been about the history of editing as well. So there were these penguins, right, <laughs> in, in the Antarctic. Oh, yes, I know you The Adélie <laughs> penguins. And uh, so this is on Scott's last fateful venture south. Yeah. 1910, 1912. And the scientist George Levick, 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 uh, Levick, think, George yeah, Levick yeah. Uh, is writing about what these penguins are getting up to, and all he can do is he can describe them as astonishing <laughs> depravity. Yeah. And uh, he then goes on. He writes about the male penguins as hooligan bands of half a dozen or more that hang about the outskirts of the knolls, whose inhabitants they annoy yeah. by their constant acts of depravity. Now, what's great about this is he doesn't actually describe what's going on, and they only eventually describe what's going on in a later, larger report. So the the main report's released to the public, but there's another bit which is added to it. It's written in Greek, yeah. and then it's made available only to a select group of stout-minded British gentleman scientists. So the question to you listeners is, yeah. what were these penguins doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is this, a, this is an over-18 podcast. No, no, it's just biology. I, I, it, it's part of a sector. There's a long section in the book about sex, um, similar to what we talked about earlier about attributing human behaviour to having evolutionary origins with similar animal behaviour. So, we talk about our sexual which are unusual. Uh, ask any 13 year old who's doing GCSE biology what the purpose of sex is, is to make a new human reproduction. Except when you crunch the numbers on this, uh, all those works out as for Britain, I think by extension, world. Um, around about one in a thousand sexual acts that could result in conception actually does. So that's not significant in statistical terms. So we've decoupled sex from reproduction, and I go into some more details in the book. But in exploring this idea that may maybe we are the only creature that has done this, that has non-reproductive sex, well the answer turns out to be a massive no. Homosexuality or homosexual behaviour in the animal kingdom is rife, widespread and everywhere. But also other non-reproductive sexual acts, such as... I beep, beep, beep. I think we're going to leave it, because I want everyone to get in touch and to either buy Adam's book, <laughs> and, then, and then you can find it, or, or um, guess. Uh, but it's not pretty. <laughs> Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I, I have I've introduced a new hashtag. Yesterday was... <laughs> what, what is your handle on Twitter? It's just Adam Rutherford. Okay. But yesterday was... Um, well, I mean, it's not in reference to the penguins, but it's, it, it's, I talk, there's, a bit of, there's a section in the book which is about sea otters, who are horrible, oh, I read horrible that bit. creatures. They are. And yesterday was World Otter Day. So I was constantly <laughs> getting thrown pictures of, of incredibly cute otters, because they are incredibly cute. But my, uh, my agent has given me the hashtag Otter Vibe Police, which I'm now using quite liberally, because every time someone tweets me a picture of it, some baby otters holding hands or cracking nuts on their tummies or doing super cute things like that, I feel obliged to tell them what otters actually get up to, which is 
wonderful and I think the key thing here is by looking at signs by looking at these wonderful crossover books by talking to people like Adam um, you can open up all sorts of wonderful ways to thinking about the past so Adam I've thoroughly enjoyed that thank you very much indeed thank you Sam and good timing because that's hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So this idea about the relationship between science and history, I found fascinating that you were talking about, because I think what what he's getting at there, what you're both getting at there is how we form knowledge. And in some ways, science and history operate in the same way with evidence. Um, But if you think about the way in which historians traditionally operate, they do work in a way that is different from scientists because scientists will go out with a hypothesis to test. So they would go out and say sort of like, I believe that um, all chimpanzees are pink. Uh, And then they will test that as a hypothesis, you know, going out and spotting pink chimpanzees and finding out that actually there are very few pink chimpanzees. Um, The way in which historians work is different from that. Certainly the way that traditionally... Uh, what you call empirical historians operate, like Jeffrey Elton, who I was talking about earlier on. You don't go out with a hypothesis, which is actually what um, distinguishes traditional historians from, say, social scientists or scientists. You don't go out and say uh, the French Revolution was caused because of this and then test it. What you do is you go to the source materials and you read as widely as you can And then by a process of magic, historical magic, uh, you come up with the answer. Um, It's the other way around. So does that sort of make sense? Sort of makes sense. Sort of makes sense. Yeah, sort of makes sense. And uh, I think that's something we need to come back to, the different methods and wiles of being a historian. Yes. Because that's all to do with different periods and different periods having bigger gaps. So some periods of history, you're blessed with an enormous amount of material and others you are not. Yes. And there's a creative art to it. Yes. But that doesn't mean making it up. No, no. <laughs> and I think one of the other things that came out of the interview for me is that how relatively recent our knowledge about early humans is. Um, you know, and it and it postdates, say, Darwin's The Origin of Species, uh, which was um, published in 
1859, I think, something like that. And Darwin was writing about animals at this point and natural selection. And while you could see that there is sort of that humans, um, you know, that there is variation, hereditary variation in most generations, uh, some individuals have more children than others, that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's very there was very little evidence that Darwin could go on to actually write about humans in that. And friends, you know, were pushing him to write about humans. Um, and he said um, in a letter to a friend, I think I shall avoid the whole subject as so surrounded with prejudices, though I fully admit that it is the highest and most interesting problem for the naturalist. I mean, basically, because so few fossils had been found. And what you have immediately after is the sort of is discovery of early human fossils. And then you and then he publishes in The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex in 1871 some sort of new analysis based on this. No, you're absolutely right. And it means there's so much more exciting material to come out and hopefully more interaction with scientists and historians. Absolutely. I found it so refreshing talking to someone who wasn't a historian. That's not an insult yes. to you, James. No, no. I, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, wear, I wear many hats. Yes. Uh, historian, uh, literary scholar as well, <laughs> material culture person, uh, glove expert... Um, what else, what, other, what other hats do I have? That might be it. Gender, gender <laughs> scholar. Um, what else? I'm, I'm sure I can think of more. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on Twitter at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out the website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. It's got all sorts of stuff on our books and our live shows coming up. And please, please, if you have the odd dollar per month to spare, support us. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Um, we really need uh, as much financial help as we can to keep these mics turned on. It takes us a considerable amount of time to do our recordings and we have to pay for the equipment and studios and editing um, and anything you can offer us per month would be hugely gratefully received. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much if you can. If not, we fully understand and we will try and keep going. <laughs> Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.